2: Hello and welcome. My name is Roy Brown and this is a very special Mid-Atlantic. I'm going to just declare my interest first and foremost. I am, at least I was, a Mikhail Gorbachev fan. He came to prominence and power in the Soviet Union when I was a teenager and had already fallen in love with politics and geopolitics and world history. And for In in effect, during my formative years, he was one of the most important people on planet Earth. Arguably the most consequential politician, world politician, in the late 20th century. So uh, this show is uh, to mourn his passing, to look at his legacy. Yes, I am a fan of Mikhail Gorbachev, but I, I completely understand why many people, many Russians in particular... Do not see him in such a great light. To explain and to talk about his legacy, I have with me Professor Ewan Morgan, who is a, a Cold War expert. He's written a great tome about Ronald Reagan, who was uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's adversary and also friend during the 1980s. And they together, they helped dismantle the Cold War and uh, brought down the Berlin Wall. Professor, how are you today?
3: Very well, thank you. Thanks First for having off, me on.
2: Listen, if it's anything to do with the Cold War, you know, and and the 1980s, you are our go-to person. Tell us the reason why Mikhail Gorbachev rose to prominence and became the leader of the Soviet Union.
3: Well, Gorbachev was born in 1931 in the Caucasus to what I suppose could be called peasant stock. And he doesn't come from a middle class family in the way that some of the earlier Soviet elite had done. But he's he quickly rises through the Young Communist League, and is seen as a coming person. So that he is he, he's marked out as someone who. The Communist Party sees as not necessarily a supreme leader in the future, but certainly someone who can hold an important position in the state. In the mid-1950s, he goes to university and gets a degree in law from Moscow State University. He becomes the first Soviet leader to have a university education since V.I. Lenin himself. And from that point on, Gorbachev, as a Communist Party member, rises through the ranks. He is what is called one of the men of the 1960s. Now, that meant that he was very much part of the group that began rising during the late uh, later years of Nikita Khrushchev's leadership, a time when Stalinism had been rejected. Khrushchev's speech to the 20th Party Congress in 1956 began to criticize the cult of Stalinism and the cult of personality. And Gorbachev is one of these people who believes that the Soviet Union needs reform. The Communist Party is the only agency capable of bringing that reform about in a way that is equitable and efficient. Uh, But in 1965, sorry, 1964, Gorbachev is really himself purged, although not in the Stalinist way fully purged uh, he's allowed to retire because he's seen as too impulsive he's seen as a, a loose cannon by the party elite and in his place comes Leonid Brezhnev now Bre- Brezhnev is a transactional leader Who tried to balance the various interests within the communist party and he isn't a reformer he's really somebody who marks time and certainly in the 1970s the latter part of the 1970s he is he's in decline physical and mental decline eventually dies in 1982 And is replaced by Yuri Andropov. Now Andropov is a much more idealistic character than Brezhnev was. And Andropov is looking to secure the future of the Communist Party by promoting young talent, young blood. And the the man who he sees as the most representative of this group is Mikhail Gorbachev, who's made a name for himself as a regional leader of the Communist Party in the Caucasus area where he came from. And Gorbachev promotes him first of all to being a non voting member of the Politburo and eventually of the Politburo itself. He's the youngest member of the Politburo appointed since World War Two. And he takes his place amongst a regime of very old men whose uh, best days are behind them. Andropov himself is very ill, only survives in office for 15 months. Which, so he backs Dean Chenienko to take over from Yuri Andropov. But Chenyenko is living on borrowed time. He himself is a, a sick man. And sure enough, he only lasts one year in office. So from 1982 to 1985, Andropov and Chernenko, as Ronald Reagan himself said, how can I get anywhere with the Soviet Union when their leaders keep dying on me? But in 1985, Gorbachev is chosen by the Politburo to become the General Secretary of the Communist Party. But the Politburo is divided. Gorbachev does not have total control of the of the Politburo, which always restrains the scope of his ambitions. Nevertheless, he has already been identified in the West by Margaret Thatcher, whom he had met in 1984. And the result of that, Thatcher tells Ronald Reagan that this is a man with whom the west can do business. Gorbachev had a geopolitical view of the world. He recognized that the Soviet Union could not go on spending the vast amount it did on the military industrial complex, That it needed to modernize its domestic economy. And for that modernization to take place, it needed taunt with the west A, in order to lessen tensions that would reduce the need for high military spending and B, to get access to Western technology, which was being denied by Americans in particular as part of their efforts to put pressure on the Soviet Union to rein in its expansionism abroad.
0: Mikhail Gorbachev came to power at a time when the USSR was seen as the evil empire, locked in a nuclear arms race with the United States.
2: He stopped a Cold War. He stopped confrontation between East and West. Millions, hundreds of millions of people in the world
3: uh, must uh, say thank you, Mr. Gorbachev, for freedom, for independence, for new policy, for democracy, for uh, for liberal political systems.
0: After the death of Konstantin Chernenko, Gorbachev was seen as a new kind of Soviet leader. Relatively young and a man who was able to engage easily with the people, charm them in a way his aged predecessors had not. A man Western leaders could do business with. But Gorbachev inherited a superpower with a failing economy. Long queues outside empty shops, punctuated daily life.
2: Just before we, we move on, Ewan, and, and we really we really get into let's say the nineteen eighties, just give us a, a real quick snapshot of the geopolitical situation. There is detente, but we still do have the Cold War. Set us back in the early to mid-1980s globally. What was the situation that Russia found itself in politically, geopolitically and economically?
3: By the late 1970s, the Soviet Union had achieved nuclear parity with the United States And that was something that the Soviet leadership had determined to achieve as a result of its perceived humiliation during the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, when it was seemingly forced to back down by the superiority of American nuclear power. In late 1979, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan. Now, this is significant because it's the first time Soviet military power has been deployed outside Eastern Europe. The a Soviet bloc in Eastern Europe which is created as a result of the Red Army's success at the end of World War Two, But in 1979, it invades Afghanistan. There's a debate about why this took place. Some see it as a defensive move to prevent the s- spread of Islamic fundamentalism from the Iranian revolution up through Pakistan, Afghanistan and into the Muslim areas of the Soviet Union. That's one theory. Another theory is that the Soviet leadership now saw itself as equal of the United States and therefore under the cover of the detente of the 1970s, they believed they had the right to intervene wherever they chose, so long as it did not lead to confrontation with the Americans. What happened as a consequence was that by 1980s, there was a perception that the West was losing the Cold War. This perception was strong in the West as much as it was in the Soviet Union. And of course it was an exaggerated fear for the very simple reason that the Soviet economy was incapable of sustaining a, a, a new technological armaments development for much longer and but no one knew this as yet there was there was certainly an exaggeration of Soviet power but it brings in the West to office brings to office in the West people who are determined to restore Western power through through the restoration of of Western strength. And, of course, no one is more typical of this than Ronald Reagan, elected president of the United States in 1980, but also Thatcher, who has warned about the dangers of Soviet power and Soviet ambition, so much so, of course, that she's known as the Iron Lady. In the Soviet Union, not the term of goodwill, even though Thatcher gloried in the nickname. But in the early 1980s, the West is determined to push back, and the Cold War enters a very, very dangerous stage because the Soviets now feel that there is a danger of a Western preemptive nuclear strike, and these uh, fears reach their peak in 1983. By the end of that year, the Soviet leadership is convinced that the able-archer NATO exercise that is taking place in November, early December 1983 is really a cover for what is going to be a preemptive attack on the Soviet Union. The crisis blows over, but it persuades Ronald Reagan that he's got to tamp down Cold War tensions in order to avoid an unnecessary nuclear war. But of course, he has nobody in the Kremlin whom he can deal with, because they all see him as a warmonger. And it requires a new person Gorbachev to come to power who sees the necessity of uh, reducing tensions and establishing a new relationship with the West. Margaret Thatcher is the first person to appreciate his potential in this regard when they meet in 1984. But as soon as uh, Gorbachev is sworn in as uh, General Secretary of the Communist Party, Reagan sends him a message urging him to meet with the American president in a summit to discuss reducing US-Soviet tensions and looking at means of reducing nuclear weaponry. Although it takes a while for that initiative to bear fruit, it eventually bears fruit in the latter part of 1985, when Reagan and Gorbachev meet for a summit on Lake Geneva, and they find out that they get on well together. Reagan himself said, for the first time, I saw a Soviet leader smile. Gorbachev has a low opinion of Reagan, initially, at any rate. He he gets to appreciate him more with time. He sees Reagan as very much uh, an American leader who deals in stereotypes about the Soviets. And Gorbachev tells him, look, uh, I don't wake up every morning thinking about how I can start a revolution in a third world country. And he's he's willing to make a joke, which is always a good way of getting on with Ronald Reagan. And even though the Geneva summit does not actually deliver anything of huge substance, it establishes a relationship that will be built on in the next three years to move on in a series of summits and without Gorbachev, the Soviet Union and the United States would have remained locked in tension.
2: Again, another masterful, sweet professor. I'm going to go to the end of the Soviet Union to try and understand some of the pressures that Gorbachev might have been under internally in, in the Communist Party. Very obviously, what happens in the summer of 1991 is that communist hardliners try a coup d'etat. They try and roll back Perestroika and, and Glasnost, and they succeed for all of about three days before people power Yelts- and Yeltsin roll their coup back. Could you tell us about those internal battles that Gorbachev must have been having with some elements of the Politburo when he's going To Geneva or to Reykjavik or to Helsinki during the 80s, and in treating with with Reagan, and the Soviet Union is rapidly changing. What can you tell us about those internal communist Politburo discussions?
3: Okay, well, when Gorbachev takes over, He's a true believer in communism and the Communist Party. And he begins with the notion that the reform, the internal reform of the Soviet Union can only be achieved via the agency of the Communist Party. Slowly, surely he changes to see the Communist Party as the problem rather than the solution. And he begins to talk about Perestroika restructuring. What does he mean by restructuring? Well, it means reducing the control of the Communist Party in areas of the economy where it has run things and run them very inefficiently. He then talks about glasnost glasnost means a a new openness a new means of thinking about the future rather than grounding everything in communist doctrine and ideology and a critical development in all this is the chernobyl nuclear disaster in the ukraine which was of course then a soviet republic in 1986 and gorbachev Initially, in a typical Soviet manner, he tries to cover it up. He refuses to allow the West full information or even inspection rights about the, the the nuclear plant. But he sees this, he, he quickly comes to the realization that the disaster was a result of incompetence, Communist Party officials' incompetence at local level, and that he now begins to see that you can't have a top-down imposition of reform. Reform has got to come from the bottom up. So he's getting more and more radical in his thinking. He's evolving. The Gorbachev of 1989 is different to the Gorbachev of 1985. But of course, the more radical he gets, the more opposition that he finds in the Politburo from the old hardliners. And in many regards, the cracks of their antagonism becomes Gorbachev's relation with Reagan. And this is one reason that Gorbachev cannot till 1987. So they've been meeting for quite a while. The Geneva summit and the Reykjavik summit have largely founded, particularly the Reykjavik summit, on Gorbachev's insistence that the Americans have to stop the development of the Strategic Defense Initiative. Now, Strategic Defense Initiative is better known as Star Wars, but it promised to revolutionize nuclear deterrence doctrine. Up until now, the Soviets and the Americans had believed that they held a balance of power, that if if one side launched a nuclear strike against the other, the retaliatory strike back by the attacked power would destroy so much of the other side that no one could really say that a war could be won. This was a mutually assured destruction, which Reagan hated and feared. And what Reagan wants is a system of defensive weaponry, lasers based in space, that can shoot down any incoming missiles targeted on the United States. And what this means, of course, is that if you've got defensive uh, weaponry against nuclear attack, that that by implication makes you contemplate an offensive, preemptive strike against the Soviet Union, which Reagan had no intention of doing, by the way, but such was the Soviet mindset that Gorbachev dared not reach any agreement over intermediate nuclear weaponry until Reagan signaled a willingness to abandon SDI. In the end, Reagan stubborn, and Reagan is absolutely determined. Look, he said, I'll give up every offensive nuclear weapon we have, but I'm not giving up the development of SDI." Because, you know, it will protect us from some future madman uh, who wants to rain nuclear wet bombs down on the United States. And Gorbachev realizes he cannot push Reagan any further. He also realizes that the United States is very far away from actually developing Star Wars. It's still very much at the planning stage, and the Soviet Union cannot afford to follow it. And that's another reason why it needs a better relationship with the United States. So Gorbachev gives in and agrees to an unconditional abandonment of each side intermediate nuclear weapons. But of course, this is another factor. And in 1989, Gorbachev decides that he has to do something about the opposition. And the, oppo- the what he decides is that he decides to create a new office of president which he will hold independent of the Communist Party. Now, this is a very, very big moment because up until now, the General Secretary of the Communist Party has been the unquestioned leader, but now the General Secretary of the Communist Party is trying to create a different power base for himself because as president he will be directly elected by popular vote even if that popular vote is even if there are no other alternatives running against him the fact that gorbachev is creating this office is seen as a threat to the very power base of the communist party and gorbachev takes it one stage further by this time the notions of freedom bred by Glasnost are beginning to lead to demands for more freedom from the grassroots up, and particularly from the other Soviet republics who are effectively under the control of the, the Russian republic, which is the Communist Party power base. And in response to this, Gorbachev decides to draft a new treaty of union, which will end the domination, the Muscovite domination of the Soviet Union and allow real devolved powers to the different republics. And this is the last straw for the old guard. This is what precipitates the attempted coup of August 1991.
0: Khrushchev knew the Soviet Union could no longer afford the Cold War. In the White House, he found a president equally interested in reducing nuclear weapons. Their signature agreement to ban short- and medium-range ballistic missiles, halting the nuclear arms race.
1: The importance of this treaty transcends numbers. We have listened to the wisdom in an old Russian maxim, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. Mr. General Secretary, though my pronunciation may give you difficulty, the maxim is "Dovei no proviei." Trust but verify.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the lowest point of his leadership was the Chernobyl nuclear disaster.
3: <laughs> the
0: it took Gorbachev three weeks to speak publicly about what had happened. Gorbachev withdrew the troops from Afghanistan. As the Berlin Wall came down, he refused to intervene, even as the communist regimes of Eastern Europe collapsed. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize the following year.
2: So, very obviously, these internal structural changes to the Soviet Union aren't happening in isolation. Glasnost brings a thawing, or let's say a loosening, of Soviet hegemony with, let's say, Poland or Czechoslovakia, Hungary, etc. Explain to us very quickly how Soviet power unravels in Eastern Europe.
3: Well, it unravels in Eastern Europe for a variety of reasons. Soviet power has come under challenge initially in Poland uh, in 1981 cracks down on the Solidarity Trade Union movement, which is trying to demand democratic rights, workers' rights. And they they establish a military dictatorship really in order to preempt a Soviet invasion. Had the Soviets invaded Poland in the way they invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968 and Hungary in 1956, that could have been a very dangerous moment in the world because Reagan was determined that that should not happen without an American response. But the Jaruzelski regime in Poland really is a Soviet puppet and cracks down on solidarity but the americans and i might add the catholic church because of course this is the time of john paul ii a polish pope collaborate to maintain solidarity as an underground movement and it's there bubbling away under the surface all the time now poland is one country But there are other countries, there's growing resentment of Soviet control, which is stifling the economies of the satellite states because they owe so much much, uh, treasure that is taken to the Soviet Union. And of course, particularly in the case of East Berlin, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, they're beginning to get pictures of what life is like in the West. They've been told for years that life is better in the Soviet bloc. There isn't any unemployment. There's full health care. There's everything you could want to live a decent life. But they begin to see through television pictures that can now be beamed. And, you know, Jeff picked up by ordinary people what life is like in the West, and they begin to see the lie, and that bubbles under the surface as well. And in in all of these countries, which have been repressed, but the repression has not completely suppressed dissent. And of course, it bursts out in dramatic form in the coming down of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Now, Ronald Reagan, in 1987, speaking in Berlin, had uh, uttered the famous word that uh, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. Gorbachev, uh, of course, paid him no attention. But in 1989, with the East German regime tottering, with dissent becoming more and more evident throughout the Eastern Bloc, even in countries like Bulgaria and, to a lesser extent, Romania and Hungary, then the situation is that the, the youth of East Berlin and the youth of West Berlin really come together and they, they begin dismantling the wall. Now, in 1968, of course, and 1956, the Soviet Union had responded to such outbursts of uh, democratic reformism with military repression. Gorbachev decides that that is no longer possible. And in 1989, you have the Velvet Revolution. And this is a signal to the West of how far Gorbachev is prepared to go to end the Cold War. And Ronald Reagan is now out of office, but George Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev meet in the Malta summit of December 1989. And most historians see that uh, summit as the laying to rest of the Cold War. So Gorbachev has recognized that Glasnost has released uh, forces that cannot be held back. But what he wants is to establish a new form of communism in Russia itself, to act as a beacon to show how communism can really operate. Now, there are a few things I agree with Margaret Thatcher on. But one thing I do agree, Thatcher, in an observation to American Secretary of State George Shultz, remarked, Gorbachev believes that you can reform the communist system from within. But the real problem, which he doesn't see, is the system itself. It can't be reformed. It can only be overthrown. And lo and behold, in 1991, that comes to pass.
0: In August 1991, tanks rolled into Red Square as conservative hardliners attempted a coup d'état. Gorbachev was kept under house arrest in Crimea, but this time the people pushed back. <laughs> Boris Yeltsin rallied the crowds outside the White House.
3: <laughs>
0: Unarmed civilians faced down tanks six years under Gorbachev, had given them courage and something worth fighting
1: for. After
0: three days, the coup collapsed and Gorbachev returned with his family to Moscow. But the balance of power had shifted away from him and he was losing ground politically. In November, Yeltsin banned the Communist Party from Russia. On Christmas Day, 1991, Gorbachev had no choice
1: but to resign.
0: His final order was the lowering of the red flag over the Kremlin. The Soviet Union was no more.
1: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
2: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom That all happens in an utter whirlwind, but you did talk about earlier about the new Union treaty where he creates the office of president, and this also gives more power to the constituent Soviet republics. Take us up to the the coup d'etat, and then I think what we'll do we'll open this out if you've still got the time to be with this professor to to people to maybe ask you a question or two, and then we can all have a conversation about the legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev. So let's start maybe in the Baltics with specifically, let's say Lithuania on um, with their kind of restive moves when they have their own president, their own parliament now to throw off the, the Soviet yoke. And then let's get as quickly as we can up to the coup in August, 1991.
3: Yeah, the fact of Glasnost, the The proposed new Treaty of Union inspires nationalists in Ukraine, certainly the Baltic republics of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, which the Soviet Union annexed in 1940, they now are encouraged to go for broke, to demand real independence. And this this leads to the hardliners making their last stand. And what they believe is that it'll be just like before. Okay, we got rid of Khrushchev. And there was no problem, we did, Stalin was denounced, there was no problem. We, we're we not dealing with a democratic, with a, a nation with a democratic tradition, tradition here. The, the Russians, people will do as they have always done and obey us. But of course, this was different. This is where we heard in that news clip, Boris Yeltsin, the leader of the Russian Republic, rallies opposition. And the plotters don't know what to do. They think it's going to be a matter of day. They're going to get Gorbachev to to retract his reforms and give him a bit of time and then get rid of him so he can't cause any more trouble. But they've unleashed a, a huge wave of grassroots protest, which they don't know what to do with. And the plotters, yield to the to the to the popular impulse yeltsin had very reluctantly agreed the draft of the treaty of union as leader of the russian soviet yeltsin didn't like Gorbachev. Gorbachev had sacked him from a previous job. So there was personal animus, but basically Yeltsin decided that now was the moment to put the Soviet Union out of existence. And he refuses to abide by the new Treaty of the Union. And Gorbachev has got no means of pressurizing him. Once the Russian Republic has refused, it creates a domino effect elsewhere, and Gorbachev is left holding a powerless presidency. His last act as president, ironically, is to declare that the Soviet Union is no longer in existence. And this this is at the end of 1991. It's a hugely spectacular moment, incredibly fast developing, caught the West by surprise. Many Western leaders wanted to preserve Gorbachev because Gorbachev, they believed, was their best hope for all peace and order. And now a new region was going to be unleashed with nationalist demands in the vastness of what was once the Soviet Union. And George Bush in particular, who saw order as the first rule of international relations, was left uncertain about what to do. He would have done much better To have, this is wisdom of hindsight, created a new Marshall Plan for Eastern Europe to help Russia and the Eastern European nations to adjust to the reality of the new democracy. But in the case of Russia, of course, Russia was left hanging, and that opened the way to the awful decade of the 1990s where he was president but patently couldn't handle the challenges of the job.
2: Again, a brilliant summation now is the time good people if you have a question if you 're on stage whilst we have the professor why don 't you unmute and, and fire your question to him or if you 've got an observation of which we can basically all share and basically kind of comment on if you 're in the audience now 's the time also for you to to raise your hand and uh, we can come up you can come up and we can have a conversation about the legacy of the politician who I think is probably the most con- consequential of the late 20th century in terms of the, the the speed of change which he brought to to the world, which is Mikhail Gorbachev, who of course passed away yesterday. So first off, we have on stage a, a few people who have a real insights when it comes to the Soviet Union, or at least Russia post the Soviet Union. Greg Sattel, I just wondered if you had a point, an observation, a question about Mikhail Gorbachev, which the professor could answer.
1: Yeah. So, Professor, I'm particularly interested in the the question of to what extent the leaders make the time and, and context and to what extent the, the time and context makes the leader. And I think one of the, the interesting things, if you compare Putin to Gorbachev, they they held in in some ways very very similar views where Gorbachev was very very supportive of annexing Crimea and at the same time with in terms of the in, with respect to the the price of oil they had exactly the opposite type of situation where m- many economists think that. The Soviet Union would have collapsed in the 70s of embargo and the increase in oil prices. And then when when Gorbachev came into power, oil prices were abnormally low. And that certainly constrained him in many different ways. Where Putin had the exact opposite experience, where when he came in, oil prices were really low. And then almost as soon as he came in, oil prices started to rise. And that, of course, gave him much greater freedom to act. So how should we understand that? To what extent did the times make Gorbachev and the times make Putin? And to what extent did they did they make their times?
3: With regard to Gorbachev, I think that we are looking at a situation in the 1970s where oil prices went through the roof, even more so uh, than they are doing today. And of course, you had the Arab oil embargo of nineteen seventy three four followed by the OPEC oil price hikes of seventy four and another OPEC oil price hike to capitalise on the revolution in Iran, which had dramatically reduced the Iranian oil production. And in many ways, of course, that was critical to the to the Soviet Union. What happened in part, I would say in large part, is that the Americans decided that it was essential to undermine Soviet oil power. The Soviets were developing a new pipeline to link Siberian oil production and sending it out to, to the West. Um, Ronald Reagan attempted to get the West to join him in economic warfare, but uh, at a time of uh, extreme recession in East, in Western Europe in the early 1980s, nobody was willing to follow him. But uh, the the American uh, the the uh, American intelligence secret ops did buy me. The development of the Yamal pipeline, which is supposed to be a dual pipeline, it eventually opens and it's only a single pipeline. And part of that is due to, shall we say, dirty tricks or clean tricks that the Americans would see against the Soviet Union. But even more important, in 1981, Reagan sells AWAC early warning to Saudi Arabia. And these begin to be delivered in 1985 over the extreme objections of Israel, who feels that it will neutralize its capacity to deliver a quick strike at any time against the Arab powers. But Reagan is insistent on the delivery of the AWACS. And as soon as they arrive, the Saudis begin dramatically expanding their oil production. And that has a very significant effect on the soviet economy as the price of oil comes down the most important russian soviet resource is declining in significance and you're right that did help to constrain gorbachev to increase the pressure on him to find new ways of reforming the system And with Putin, certainly since not in his first term so much, but I think in his second and now his third term, the price of oil and natural gas has been critical to allowing Putin to pursue his geopolitical objective. But even allowing for that, I think, that Putin and Gorbachev have one thing in common. They both believe in the exceptionalism, if you like, of Russia. Even Gorbachev, the communists, believed this. Putin believes it in spades. And, you know, Gorbachev created a history in his mind of what the potential of communism was until Stalin perverted it. Putin is looking to, you know, Putin is looking to the the Russian past and uh, seeing himself as another leader dealing with the threat from without and arguing that Soviet, the, sorry, the Russian people have always pro, have always prioritized order and internal stability and security over all other things. Now, interestingly, you might you might say that the cost of fighting the Cold War eventually destroyed the Soviet economy. The cost of fighting the Ukrainian the Ukraine war may yet do for Putin. And you've only got to look back in Russian history and how wars have generated significant change. The, the uh, terrible, terribly inefficient Russian response in the uh, Crimean War was a prelude to the reforms, the, the emancipation of the serfs in the 1860s. World War I led to the collapse of Tsarism and the coming of the communists. So wars have always been significant in putting putting challenges on the Russian stroke communist system. And one wonders whether the same will be true in Putin's case.
1: Professor, I'd be very interested to hear just in terms of their sort of philosophies because these days people give a lot of credit to Alexander Dugin for this Putin's kind of Eurasian philosophy. But actually, it originated much earlier with, I think, Ivan Ilyich. And to what extent did Gorbachev also hold those similar views?
3: Well, I think Gorbachev, of course, he comes from the Caucasus. He's got a vision of the Soviet Union, which is different from the Muscovite elite, if you you like. It's very difficult to disentangle Gorbachev from the communist elite. You know, he's part of it. He's seen as a coming man and he has he has to have promoters in the system. Most obviously, in his case, Andropov. So, you know, Gorbachev can't exist outside the Communist Party structure. This is part of its problem, I think. I don't think Putin... I know Putin talks about the communist past and finds reasons to believe uh, positively about it. But uh, whether he does or doesn't, whether he's using that illusion to justify his own position, that's a matter for debate. But in Gorbachev's case, I think Gorbachev was an out-and-out communist when he took power. And it was a, a testimony to his intellectual flexibility, if you like, but intellectual openness, I prefer to say, that he saw that ultimately the party was the problem, not the solution.
2: Thank you for that follow-up question there, Mr. Greg Sattel. Can I just say, Professor, you forgot a war which really influenced Russian history, which is the Russian-Japanese War, 1905-1906, which then leads to elections to, to the Duma for the first time. There you go, showing off. Yeah, little, I,
3: sorry, <laughs> I, I, I could go on and on and on about wars and you know Peter the Great, you know the the so-called against the Swedes and the
2: Great Northern War. War. But, I, but, but listen, uh, you and I are both rosho files when it comes when it comes to history. But we do have a, a massive stage now. So, Iris, think
0: as a Jewish person and an Israeli, I, I would like to to bring part of Gorbachev that you, you maybe you can talk about a little bit. But it's the, his, his approach to Jewish people in the in the Soviet Union, opening and being very considerate about the Jewish people while he was while he, he giving giving them all the opportunity to to practice Judaism, to talk Hebrew, to talk Yiddish, and he actually opened the gates from the Soviet Union for Jewish people to come to Israel. I think lots of Jewish organizations in the last few days mourned. The death of Gorbachev, because for me it's like one of his biggest humanitarian aspects and I would love to hear
2: your...
3: Well that's a very interesting observation, as indeed was the previous one, and you're you're absolutely right, Gorbachev does have this very open attitude. The role of Jews in the Soviet Union, of course, you know, you can go all the way back to Tsarist times, the uh, Pogroms of the uh, the late nineteenth century and uh, the the very ambiguous position of Jews in the Soviet Union, the suspicion that you know they they 're not dedicated communists because they have a different system of beliefs and Gorbachev is very open, and you are right i I should have said in my talk that whilst I concentrated in a lot of gorbachev's ideals which weren't realised, I think this was one where he is fully deserving of the applause of history.
2: Joy Christine, over to you.
0: I just wanted to start by thanking the professor and you, Roy Field, for this really great history lesson. And just one observation that as a child of the 80s in America, as you can tell from my accent, Gorbachev was definitely one of the handful of leaders that made a huge impact, whether we had a family that was very politically plugged in and watching the news or not, because, you know, it crossed over to pop culture, even with Gorbachev, just everyone knew who he was. And it gave, I think, a lot of people a lot of optimism for the future.
3: Absolutely. There was an outbreak of what the media called Gorby Mania when uh, Gorbachev visited the United States to sign the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty of 1987. And in almost like a Western politician, he was being driven from the Soviet embassy to the White House on, I think it was day two of his stay. And he suddenly told the driver, stop the car, and he just got out to the car, much to the horror of his B protection team, and just walked out into the crowd and began shaking hands with them in, in the manner of a Western politician, but something utterly alien to a Soviet politician. So he was re- remarkably able to play the Western media. And Ronald Reagan was actually asked, do you object to being upstaged by Mikhail Gorbachev? And Reagan laughed and he said, look, I was used to being upstaged in Hollywood by the likes of Errol Flynn. This is nothing new."
2: So, Rick Sanchez, your one point, sir.
1: Yeah, I've never heard this really discussed much, but... How did the rise of the information age? I mean the seeds of the information age were kind of really beginning to ramp up during Gorbachev's tenure. You know, the personal computer, everything going on at MIT and Silicon Valley and Texas. The writing had to be on the wall and with Soviet intelligence being
3: pretty good at what they do. How did that affect did that affect Gorbachev's decisions at all? Gorbachev knew that modernization would require access full access to Western technology, which was being denied the the Americans did levy an embargo on high tech equipment to the to the Soviet Union for much of the nineteen eighties, and they were the market leaders in this if the the British, French, and Germans went quite as tough in their approach, nevertheless, Gorbachev was well aware of uh, the Soviet Union was falling further and further behind. And the fact that, you know, he had to deal, you know, in in the West, you had entrepreneurs who were taking things forward. In Russia, in the Soviet Union, you relied on the Communist Party, which was shot through with corruption, incompetence and inefficiency. Interestingly, from your remark, Ronald Reagan went to Moscow in May 1988 and delivered a lecture at Gorbachev's Meta, Moscow State University. And the theme of Reagan's lecture was how the microchip was going to revolutionize the meaning of freedom in the 21st century.
1: Thank, thank you. you uh, for thanks. Great information today. So thank you, Roy Field, and thank you, Professor.
2: Tina, do you have one point, one observation to make? My question and opera question is for how do you see a meeting summit in 1990 in Helsinki? How much that impact for the Finlandization and? development, political development afterwards, and also current Middle East situation, what we see in Afghanistan, because actually that meeting in 1990 was the first meeting ever held by two powerful presidents, George Bush, Bush. Mikhail Kopacheff and this was just one month after Saddam Hussein actually invaded Kuvain. So, how do you see these two events, how much impact was Helsinki summit?
3: Well, obviously, a very significant one. That's an interesting question. And I admit that I have underestimated and overlooked the significance of that 1919 meeting. But it did show that Gorbachev was beginning to look to develop a new post-Cold War order in Combination with the Americans and history could have turned out quite different. I think if Gorbachev had survived the experience of the 1990s, the rapacious decade internally in the Soviet Union, the in the, the, the growth eastwards of NATO, where the Soviet, where where Russia really wasn't treated as a serious power any longer. And this really rubbed people like Putin up. So I think if that spirit of Helsinki had been sustained, world history would have been different and sufficiently naive or idealistic to believe that. But I would like to say that Helsinki has always had an important part in diplomacy, and we should always recognise the significance of the, the Helsinki Accords I think of 1975, which established human rights as a an issue of legitimate concern in international relations. And they did lay foundations which could not be wholly suppressed in the Soviet bloc.
2: Thank you for that excellent question and that great answer, Professor Igor, my good friend over there in Belgrade. What's your question or your one point, sir?
0: can pick one of
1: the biggest failures of Gorbachev in political sense during his reign, and what would be?
3: Well, Royfield has described Gorbachev as the most consequential international leader of the second half of the 20th century, and I would like to believe that that was the case, but... I would have to take issue. Gorbachev's greatest failure was to have effectively been overthrown, and the consequences of that limited the consequential nature of his legacy. You know, did it have much effect on the Russia? Russia internally very questionable. Did it have much impact on international affairs? we 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 move rapidly from a period of a bi a bipolar world order to a unipolar world order so you know the fact that gorbachev was overthrown by forces which he could which he had unleashed but couldn't control was significant and if you want my opinion on the most consequential leader of the 20th century as a whole I personally would opt for Franklin D. Roosevelt, and if you want the most consequential leader of the second part of the 20th century, and we're still living to a certain extent in the age that he shaped, that's Ronald Reagan. I'm sorry, that's a very American-centered interpretation, and perhaps I should bow out now and let you guys get on with talking amongst yourselves rather than imposing my U.S.-centered views on you.
2: Russian Europe next. Thank you very much for this wonderful room. What do you think that it will happen to, between
0: German-Russian relationships with giving this president ruling Russia and this situation? Do you think that there will be somehow some kind of coming back together, maybe after decades, or what do you think? Do we expecting a very cold war between or, or cold war similar situation between Germany and Russia? Thank you and.
3: Well, that's an interesting question. I suspect that Germany, you know, Germany's taking quite a hit at the moment in standing up to Putin and Russia uh, possibly uh, not doing as much as shall we say the United States and even dare I say the United Kingdom but nevertheless for Germany to play this role is a very important role because although no one in we're, we're about to have a new Prime Minister in the United Kingdom and whoever becomes Prime Minister would never admit this but Germany is the most important nation in Western Europe personally, I am pleased that Germany is playing more of a role in European diplomacy at the moment and ha- recognising that a strong German military is an important force for peace in Europe. So whether that means a prolonged cold, new Cold War with the Soviet Union, we shall see, it all depends on how long Putin lasts and what replaces him.
2: Professor, really a question regarding on the economic aspect of it. I think we've discussed a lot of the uh, Gorbachev political legacy, and I think there's no question that he literally broke down the wall. I wonder in your research and studies, what do you think his impact on the economic development in Russia? Whether that was one of his points that he probably, quote unquote, overlooked or whether he was
0: not able to implement you know, the Western style market economy, trading, et cetera, et cetera. And what do you think of the future, you know, in the current Russia, that his impact on economic development where Russia could learn or emulate or
3: develop its
1: own economy in a market economy manner? Thank you.
3: Well, of course, Gorbachev was very suspicious of the market, but he recognized that in some circumstances, the market was useful. I don't think his Perestroika and Glasnost policies had sufficient time to develop, but you know, we've got to remember that the Communist Party controlled so many aspects of the Soviet economy, and that it was an increasingly inefficient, corrupt, dead hand. So it's difficult to say with Gorbachev, Russia you know, Russia has a GDP today equivalent to that of South Korea. It is a military superpower, but an economic second rate power. For for Russia to develop, I think it has to open up to more development of new things rather than rely on primary sources like oil, uh, natural gas, etc. And that requires a free market or a a mixed economy, more accurately. I don't think the free market exists anywhere. But for a Western-style mixed economy to emerge, that is probably Russia's best hope. But at the moment, of course, the Putin regime operates a kleptocracy where the economy is in in its own way, is as controlled as it was in the Soviet Union. It's just a different kind of control. And I I can't see much prospect of that happening. And to make things worse, of course, many of what you could call the intelligentsia, many of the entrepreneurial class that uh, would uh, push things forward and bring about change, many of them have left Russia in protest at the war, settled in places like Georgia, Turkey, uh, Germany and Poland. And, you know, that class is required to be, if if Russia is to forge a genuinely modern identity.
2: As I said at the start of the show, I am a profound fan of Mikhail Gorbachev. And in the 1980s, in the late 1980s, as I think the professor said, but also I think Prussian said, he was easily the most popular politician in the world. At one point, Corbymania didn't just strike the UK, it was the US, it, it was Germany. He was seen as somebody who brought a fresh air into Cold War politics. And basically, because of his premiership, we assigned that to the past. Very obviously, the legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev is something which is incredibly complex for us now. The fall of the Soviet Union and the ramifications of it, we're living through it now, very viscerally through the hot kinetic war, which is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That is a post-Soviet conflict because of the way that the Soviet Union was constructed. So was he somebody ultimately, which was a force for good, I think we can absolutely say, say that he was, but just because somebody is a force for good doesn't mean that in their wake, confusion, war, and other negative aspects are also wreaked in their wake. The Soviet Union did collapse literally overnight. The Western leaders, as the, preface, as the professor said, didn't see the end of the Soviet Union coming, or at least they didn't see it coming in August 1991 to be officially wrapped up on Christmas Day in 1991. That took everybody by surprise. It shouldn't surprise us at all, people outside of Russia, the fact that Russians have a much more negative view of him because what they assign to his rule in the Soviet Union is the end of empire, the end of greatness, the end of... Russia for slash, the Soviet Union being at the great tables around the world helping to mediate on world matters and then what ha- then what follows is at least 10 years of economic retrenchment and and best stagnation but really retrenchment where the Russian people had real deprivations so whilst I think Mikhail Gorbachev is a net positive he helped tear down the Berlin Wall, give freedom to Eastern Europe. And that's just off the top of my head before I go on any further with these legacies. I think we should take a moment to understand how Russians can view it in a very different light. Professor Ewan Morgan, I know that you have a book out at the moment. What is the name of your book? Please plug it on the podcast.
3: Okay, the name of the book is Franklin D. Roosevelt, well, actually, FDR, Transforming the Presidency and Renewing America
2: brilliant people please go out well get out your smartphones get out your laptops and order that on amazon and write it a glowing review go buy it write the review the professor is a wonderful friend of mid-atlantic and also 10 american presidents so please show your support from there also if you're in the audience give him a follow because you never know the more follows he gets he might actually come back onto the app we might be able to tempt him back to to talk about the cold war in another guys on another podcast i'm roy phil brown this has been mid-atlantic thank you for being with us thank you to everybody who's on stage who's posed a question but again thank you to professor ewan morgan for really delving into Mikhail Gorbachev, man who i say and i still believe is the most consequential world politician of the late 20th century who passed away yesterday thank you look after yourselves bye-bye